Hello, good evening. Welcome to tonight's edition of Resistance TV. Uh, for those of you that tuned in expecting a discussion on local government, unfortunately, our guest who we were planning to bring onto the show uh, this evening has had to go into hospital. But I'm delighted to welcome Bob, Dr. Bob Gill this evening. And we're going to be speaking about the insidious, ongoing insidious privatisation of the National Health Service and these COVID contracts, which were the failure to publicise them anyway, were deemed to be unlawful. And uh, obviously our National Health Service is uh, in mortal danger. And Bob Gill, uh, I'm sure many viewers will remember, uh, published the excellent documentary, The Great NHS Heist, and has been uh, making it his business really to, to monitor the uh, ongoing attacks that the National Health Service is being subjected to and trying to draw attention to it. He's attending at least one meeting a week, trying to take this message out around the country so that we can arm people with the information that is needed. Because as Nye Bevan once said, that the National Health Service will last for as long as there are folks willing to fight for it. And it's important, therefore, that we do encourage people to stand up for our National Health Service and let people know what's being going on. But let's just start, Bob, because uh, I think it was last month, actually, now, I saw that there was a big... American uh, uh, insurance company, or their subsidiary anyway, their British-based subsidiary, have purchased uh, a, a huge, I think it was AT, AT Medics, was it? Um, a big uh, a primary care provider. And I think this uh, American subsidiary now runs uh, at least 70 GPs in London and around the country. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of people are still unaware of uh, how serious this threat to our National Health Service really is. Could you perhaps let us know from your experience the sort of amount of privatisation that has already happened and uh, what else is in the pipeline that you're aware of? Thank you, Chris. Yes. Yeah, so just to, before I start, I've been virtually around the country, not not uh, just before oh, I get £10,000 fine um, <laughs> yes. yeah so so the company you mentioned centene are one of the biggest uh, us health insurers and if, if there was ever an alarm bell to be rung uh, now is the time because fundamentally people have to ask themselves what is a private insurer doing involved with the nhs now the film i made with colleagues uh, the tail end of 2019 set out the fact that the NHS to, to the business community is just a series of assets. And the asset that Centene are going for is the budget attached to the patient. And what they've done is bought out a private business run by entrepreneurial GPs who managed to bring together a total list size of 370,000, if you add up all their, all their practices in London. And Centene added that to what they already controlled, uh, giving them total control of 70 practices across the country. Now, they're not interested in providing care for the patients. What they want to do is get hold of the budget and cut the costs. And what they manage to keep behind will be their profit. That's how the insurance industry works. The business model of the insurance industry is to deny care. And unfortunately, the framework that the NHS has been set up on is exactly that. The 2012 uh, Health and Social Care Act was 500 pages of competition law designed for the benefit of the insurance industry. So 
myself and others, we've been banging the drum about this being the destination, but because it seemed so intangible, it seemed so far off, it seemed so far-stretched, unfortunately, a lot of campaigners and campaign groups have not raised people's awareness, so people are really caught off guard and they don't quite understand the seriousness of this latest assault. I mean, sometimes these these contracts uh, get um, let to uh, various companies and it's almost on um, below the radar unless there are campaigners drawing it to people's attention. I remember in my home city of Derby, the walk-in centre, for example, this is going back a couple of years or so ago now, had been taken over by uh, an American uh, health uh, company. And... Um, we kind of found out that by chance, really, you know, and a lot of people were really quite surprised. So um, do you think that's a, an issue then that, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that's, that's happened that people just simply aren't aware of? Because we don't tend to get a lot of coverage in the, or as much coverage as it should do anyway, in the in the corporate media, do we? Uh, absolutely. That, that, you know, this is just the latest uh, uh, element of the privatisation. But if you, if you step back, the NHS by loading itself with private finance initiative debt in effect has privatized the real estate so for every hospital they knock down flog off the land you've got rid of an asset and when they build a new hospital with private finance initiative debt the public don't own it so in fact you've privatized the the land and the building so you sold off the land to property developers and the new building is you're just paying the mortgage. You will never own that new PFI hospital. So the real estate has been largely privatized. This, you've had this transfer over to the private sector. What we're seeing with the, uh, the latest Centene grab is the privatization of the control of the budgets. Now, the guy at the head of the NHS, uh, Mr. Simon Stevens, he was formerly of United Health, which is America's biggest private insurer. And the NHS England board is stuffed with people from the private sector. So, in fact, you could call the NHS England board a privatization board. I have still to meet anybody or come across anybody whose CV is uh, compatible with public service, who's leading the NHS. So whenever we hear this term, NHS leaders, these are people either from the big four accountancy firms the consultancy firms like McKinsey, property developing companies, and the insurance industry. That's who's running our NHS. Yeah. How do you respond, Bob, to those who actually support this agenda, who say that uh, bringing the, the, the private sector into public services, into the National Health Service, actually brings in a, a kind of efficiency discipline and you get better value for money, this is the, their argument. I mean, if you look actually at the American model, it doesn't seem to, to stand up to scrutiny. But tell us a little bit about what, how you would respond to that assertion that, that the private sector is more efficient than the public sector. Well, I would take a very current example of the test and trace system. So we have, in effect, two systems. We have an experiment going on in, in real time. You have a tier one, which is the NHS-run uh, hospital-based testing and tracing system predominantly used for staff, and you have a tier two test and trace system run by Serco and a multitude of subcontractors. The performance, if you compare the performance of both, the NHS has outperformed consistently the Serco test and trace on a fraction of the cost. 
So that's a current example of how wasteful the private sector is. Just go back a year or two and look at the involvement of Carillion within the NHS, the building of hospitals. That's what they were in charge of. In fact, what they were in effect running was a Ponzi scheme dependent on getting more and more public sector contracts, underbidding their competitors, but never being able to turn a profit. They were dependent on new contracts to pay the other people that they owed bills to, to keep the show on the road. And that's ended up wasting billions of pounds and causing other businesses to fail. But there's not a country in the world that offers universal health care, comprehensive health care on a privatized model. It doesn't exist. The most privatized model and the model we are copying is that of the United States, where it doesn't work because, because of market failure. The market doesn't want expensive patients. The market doesn't want people who don't have money. So those people are not covered by the private system. Who steps in? The public sector. So you end up with a totally uh, fragmented, patchwork, confusing, dangerous, and doubly expensive service, which is performs far less well than the NHS. For example, if you look at maternal mortality, if you look at infant mortality, if you look at life expectancy, these are three statistically provable endpoints that show that a more publicly provided system, the better the outcomes at less expense. Yeah. How much do you know has been spent with the private sector in this COVID crisis? You mentioned the test and trace there, but there's been a number of contracts, hasn't there? And indeed, there's been a, uh, a legal challenge, hasn't there, to the Secretary of State, Matt Hancock, who <clears throat> was deemed to have acted unlawfully and not actually publicising these COVID contracts. Do you know what the figures are that they've actually spent in the private sector? Or before the so COVID? Certainly the test and trace system, there was a 22 billion investment last year. And in the, the budget discussed last week, there's another 15 billion being put aside for the private test and trace system. So that's a total of 37 billion, which is about the third of the annual running cost of the NHS. So we're talking staggering amounts. And we had today the Public Accounts Committee saying there was no measurable benefit from the test and trace system. So this is money essentially down the drain. And we, the other huge cost that's gone out is in terms of PPE contracts. I don't know the total cost, but the Times did quite a detailed analysis of the contracts that had gone out. And the worrying trend was that many of the contracts went out to people without any experience of providing these uh, equipments to the NHS. And many of them had links to the Conservative Party. Either they were members of the party or major donors to the party. And in fact, there was a special committee set up within the cabinet office to fast track contracts being awarded. And there was a VIP stream. So if you were a VIP, you were 10 times more likely to be awarded a contract. And now we know uh, thanks to the work of groups like the Good Law Project, the vast majority, majority of these contracts, which should have been the details released within 30 days, were never disclosed to the public. Mm. I mean, this approach, I suppose, to public services and National Health Service in particular was inflicted on the country 
with the advent of Margaret Thatcher coming to power in 1979. But sadly, it was embraced, wasn't it, by the new Labour regime of uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, who actually uh, introduced the foundation uh, hospital uh, idea and, uh, you know, brought in the sort of, uh, you know, the initial sort of privatisations. I mean, where was the Labour Party standing in all this? I mean, and how are they kind of responding, in your view, to the way in which the government has uh, dealt with the COVID crisis, for example? Yeah, so you're right about New Labour's role. You know, in the 13 years that they came in, no doubt more money went into the service. Uh, the buildings were new. But what the public didn't realise was that you had this transferring out of ownership through the PFI. So PFI was New Labour's biggest legacy millstone that they, they left the NHS with. Alan Milburn, for the first time ever, started to outsource clinical services. And they emboldened and increased the size of the management bureaucracy necessary to run a privatised system. So they did a lot of damage, although the services did improve whilst they were pushing the money in. So, you know, people were caught off guard and they didn't expect the Labour Party to be doing that. Um, there was a brief period between twenty the Corbyn leadership, 2016 to 2019, where we started to hear for the first time the P word coming from a Labour Party front bench, which was privatisation, calling it out for what it is and raising the threat level. But to my satisfaction, this was never done to, to the degree that it should be. And unfortunately, what we're hearing from the front bench now under Starmer's leadership is very weak and just barely keeps up with what is in the mainstream press. They do very little to extend people's understanding. And, uh, you know, I found out today that Starmer's not backing potential industrial action by the nurses with their pathetic 1% pay cut that they've, uh, a real terms pay cut that they've been awarded in the budget last week. Indeed, I was going to come on to that, actually. But before I do, I wanted to just uh, get your thoughts as well about this idea of, uh, of patient choice that seemed to be a mantra of the new Labour years. And it sounds quite seductive, actually, on the face of it. I mean, what, do you have any observations about that? Do you think that was a good thing or were there some downsides to it? It, it was a plausible narrative, a good cover story to introduce changes that never made any logical sense. So if you, if you start to present... Um, you know, the, the choice of Hospital A versus Hospital B based on phony league tables which are, which are open to being manipulated and saying, well, this is patient empowerment. Who will argue against patient empowerment? The, the reality is patient choice is based on data that they are presented with. Now, who's in charge of that data? Who controls the data? I'll give you an example of how perverse this can be. If I am a surgeon who wants to be chosen by the patients to come to my hospital, how do I do that? I improve my outcomes. And how do I improve my outcomes? I start avoiding complex cases. So it looks like my success rate is a lot better than the person down the road. So this phony competition and choice isn't a totally artificial construct controlled to deliver a certain outcome. And the outcome they wanted then was to fragment services and present it as some sort of patient patient empowerment. The other the other phony story we were sold is that you know rather than being professionals, we need to become almost salesmen and sell our service and 
alter our service based on patient satisfaction? Well, patient satisfaction is easy to manipulate and can also have perverse outcomes. And there was a study done by the right-wing uh, think tank called the RAND organization in America, which, which studied uh, the relationship between patient satisfaction and mortality. So, you know, if you're, if you're a satisfied patient, were you more or less likely to die? And the answer was, you are more likely to die if you are a satisfied patient. Now, wow. the, you wonder, well, why, why would that happen? And that may happen because in order to keep a demanding patient satisfied, you prescribe more and more, you intervene more and more, and sometimes you're tempted to do things because the patient wants them done, but are not in that patient's interest. So the, fu the fundamental principle of deciding services on patient choice and patient satisfaction is totally flawed. Yeah, I mean, and um, just going on then to your point about the 1% pay rise uh, for uh, health workers. I, I mean, you know, we've heard a lot of warm words and um, positive rhetoric about the importance of uh, our frontline health workers, you being one of them. What's the kind of reaction uh, that you have encountered from health workers to the way in which they're being treated? I mean, you know, we were being encouraged to applaud health workers, but when it comes to actually paying health workers a proper salary and, and, and actually recognising the sacrifice and the effort that they've put in over this last year, the government seems to be left wanting, really, don't they? I don't think it's uh, come as a total surprise, given we've had a decade of pay freeze. So it's in, 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 in essence, uh, NHS staff have suffered a real terms pay cut of 15 to 20 percent since the austerity uh, agenda kicked in in 2010. And, you know, although people hoped against hope and hoped against experience that maybe the government might do the right thing, but it cannot do the right thing by the staff because it doesn't fit the business plan. And the business plan is to keep the wage bill down before you hand over total control of the hospitals and the budgets to the private sector. The hospital chains that are coming into play in the, in the UK, such as uh, HCA, Hospital Corporation of America and others, they are the potential new people who will be running the hospitals and they do not want to inherit staff who are highly paid, highly paid. So the, the government know that this is the long-term agenda and their 1% is totally in keeping with, with that agenda. But if you compare what a 15% settlement would have meant in terms of um, cost to the government, cost to the treasury, it would have been in the order of 1.5 to 2 billion. Now compare that to the cost of the test and trace system, which is going to come to 37 billion with no measurable impact, according to the Public Accounts Committee. If you compare those two facts, then you realize the NHS is no longer about providing safe care and looking and treating their staff with respect. It's all about turning every pound spent into a profit-extracting opportunity for one corporation or the other. Mm. I mean, this is truly shocking stuff that you're, you're, you're 
telling us this evening, Bob. And I just wonder, you know, for people watching this evening, what, you know, what can they do? Um, how can they help to turn this around? Because the NHS has been under attack now for some considerable time. Yes, as you mentioned, a lot of money was put into the service when the new Labour were in office and satisfaction in the, in the health service, I think, had never been, been higher. But as you say, that did mask a, um, uh, in some of the nasty stuff that was going on behind the scenes. And we're kind of reaping that, that whirlwind now. And uh, having said that, though, there are still, as I say, people perhaps not fully appreciative of, of, of what's happened. And, you know, as we were saying, Nye Bevan used to say that the NHS will last for as long as there are folk willing to fight for it. What, what can we do? What would you suggest we do to, to help people fight for it? Because it's definitely under threat, isn't it? Well, there's, there's no doubt about it. I, I think you've got to be uh, have your head firmly in the sand to not realise what's going on. But unfortunately, it's human nature, uh, rather than face a painful truth, to try and look away and distract yourself, you know? But if, if people genuinely want to uh, grapple and do something useful, the first thing they should do is educate themselves to really get their head around what's, what's coming. Because if you understand it, uh, and if you understand the American system, we will, let, we will all end up paying twice as much, be it di directly as an insurance policy holder or paying out of our pocket, subsidized by the NHS budget we will have allocated and potentially receiving worse care or not no care at all, that, that is the future. Now, if you can face and accept that this is where we are heading and it gets you angry and motivated, then, then we can work with that. And how, how, what do you do next? Well, tell your immediate family, tell your immediate social circle. If you're a member of an organization, if you're a union, particularly a health union, ask your leaders and branch officers Guys, why aren't you telling us any of this? What is the problem? In fact, you're more likely to have success speaking to a non-health union because, unfortunately, a lot of the leaderships, uh, you know, within these representative bodies, so-called so anyway, are either, you know, ideologically aligned to what's going on or are too stupid to realize what's going on and haven't thought it important to tell their members. So, so the grassroots need to ask some serious questions about their leadership. Um, I put out a tweet today about a very positive comment from the Royal College of General Practitioners supporting the creation of primary care networks. Now, primary care networks will be the end of general practice as we know it. So you have a body that I'm paying £400 a year to be a member of advocating for the destruction of general practice so so you know the more of us that realize what's going on the more of us can ask searching and informed questions of the, the people supposedly representing us and i think that's a start i think the other important thing to to try and do is make allies from across the pond because if we can really hear loud warning bells from our american cousins about not adopting their toxic, dysfunctional, and endemically corrupt system, again, it might have a powerful, powerful jolting effect on us, uh, which is what we need. 
Yeah, I mean, and certainly there are voices there, no doubt about that. And like here, though, there is a real frustration, I think, about the 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 standard of the political class. I think there was a lot of hope, for example, with some of the progressive Democrats that were elected and there was hope that they would force a vote on Medicare for all. And in the end, they, they flunked it. They didn't actually push it. And they had some power to do that by withholding their vote for Nancy Pelosi to be the Speaker of the House. And they just gave her their support with, with nothing in return. And there was, there was pressure being made, particularly by people like Jimmy Dore, who was urging them to withhold their vote um, unless she guaranteed a vote on the floor of the, of the House for, for that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely um, an appetite. And I think it's something, because uh, I, I watch Jimmy Dore's show quite regularly. I don't know if you've seen him, but he speaks about mm -hmm. this. And I think he was saying that some of the polls are suggesting uh, it's in the order of 65 to 70% of uh, American citizens actually support a kind of a national health service. Why wouldn't they when there are so many millions, I think it's 40 million Americans don't have any health care cover whatsoever. And I've seen some of the documentaries, uh, you know, some, some shocking tales, really. I remember seeing one uh, occasion where I think it was in Kentucky, where there were uh, a number of clinicians provided a, a sort of um, a, a pop-up um, uh, surgery, as it were, to, to people on a range of different uh, uh, specialisms. And I remember there was uh, interview, and, and the place that descended on, I mean, they, you know, they had to have traffic marshals to actually deal with the, the amount of, of traffic of people that because they had no alternative but to go to that. And I remember interviewing one poor chap. He was there with his, with his partner and his kids. He was in agony because he got toothache and he couldn't afford to go to the dentist. Mm. I mean, this is shocking. I mean, and, you know, dentistry in this country, of course, is, uh, you know, something that, you know, even the National Health Service uh, uh, dentists you still end up uh, paying for. And, of course, this was something that Nye Bevan and uh, Harold Wilson, I think it was, wasn't it? who actually resigned from the cabinet, um, the Labour cabinet in the late 1940s or 1950, it might have been, I can't remember the right date, when there was those uh, initial cuts that were being made to the National Health Service. At that time, I think the excuse was to, to fund the war in Korea. I mean, some things never, never changed, do they, really, with the kind of the warmongering uh, characters at the top of the, uh, of the Labour Party. But yes, I mean, I think that's important that we do try and build those, uh, those links, Bob, uh, with uh, people across the, the pond, as it were, to try and uh, bring uh, uh, pressure on the uh, uh, Labour Party and on the, on, the, on the government. Because, you know, there's no doubt about it, the National Health Service is incredibly popular. We saw that, didn't we, the, you know, with, the, with the Olympics, with the opening ceremony, how that, that was such a, a feature of the opening ceremony so so it's held in in high esteem by people but but this is kind of happening as i say you know a bit below the radar and we've got to find ways of of giving people the the tools i guess to uh you know take take the battle to the politicians who are supposed to be acting in our name but unfortunately they seem to be representing the interests of the of the privateers do they not i mean and uh, i think the uh, uh, somebody, a senior figure, which should be his head of press in the uh, PR in uh, Keir Starmer's office, is a former private uh, healthcare lobbyist, isn't he, Bob? Do you know much about this character? Yeah, so, you know, what we've got both, si both sides of the Atlantic is essentially the, the corporate capture of our politics. So you have this revolving door between, you know, special advisors, management consultants who come and work in the Department of Health and go back into the private sector, then a few years later come back. And Simon Stevens is a prime example. 
the the chap who I think is head of comms for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party is a man called Ben Nunn, who is a former private health lobbyist. So you can see how it works. Um, and we know that politicians who, once they retire, go on to lucrative careers advising all over the world. For example, you know, who, who better than Tony Blair to give to to show how much money you can be can be made if you do the bidding of the American industrial, you know, military industrial complex in that case. Um, the clinic you mentioned in America, these are voluntary clinics run by people of goodwill who will see people who are in desperate need. And we we actually filmed one of these clinics when, when we made our documentary. And what is striking is most of the people there had insurance, Chris. Mm. They had insurance. Michael Moore's film I strongly recommend for people to watch made in 2007 called Sicko was all about people with insurance and the games that the insurance companies play to deny you payment. And even in the case of, you know, the most serious case that I know of is delaying permission for somebody to have a liver transplant who needed a liver transplant but arguing with the doctors who were looking after her, saying, well, you know, it's an experimental intervention, until in that case it was too late and the patient died from liver failure. So one phrase they use is delay, deny, hope you die. That is, that is, the, uh, that is the mission statement, unofficial mission statement of the American insurance industry. And these are the people we've invited in, well, our governments have, invited in to run the NHS. One more example I want to give. We, you know, we've all heard the name Dido Harding. Uh, she's formerly a, used to work for McKinsey, which is one of the biggest management consultants. And they drafted much of the uh, white papers that they, they drafted the 2012 Health and Social Care Act. They also drafted the outgoing new Labour government's Quip report in 2009, which talked about massive cuts in staff, and they were using the banking crisis as the opportunity to force through significant cuts in the NHS. It was called the Nicholson Challenge. They wanted to cut 20 billion from NHS spending. So we lost a lot of staff with those cuts in the early 2000s. The point I'm making is the architects of much of what we're seeing aren't the politicians. They are coming from the very industries that are going to benefit from the changes. So there's a built-in conflict of interest, and McKinsey are major players in this. And there was a recent court settlement which involved McKinsey, who were, went over to advise a pharmaceutical company called Pardue, who are behind the uh, opiate epidemic in America, which has claimed almost 500,000 lives in the last decade. McKinsey went to give them advice on how to expand their profit base. These are the people. These are the people who are shaping the NHS. They should be nowhere near a public service. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully uh, with programs like this, uh, you know, it helps us to spread the word and, and, and hopefully that can then turn, you know, inform people that they can then use that um, to, to, to bring pressure to, to bear on our uh, politicians and, uh, and hopefully turn things around. One bit of good news, though, isn't it, is the, uh, you know, if we're being fair, 
to the government. I'm not sure why we should be, but uh, the the rollout of the of the vaccine seems to work quite well, doesn't it? What's, what's your thoughts about that, Bob? Yeah, so the numbers are in excess of 20 million people having received their first, at least their first vaccine shot. Um, and the news about how effective the vaccine is also very positive. People are getting significant protection just after one jab. So that's all good news. They've, it seems to me that, you know, although we, we can't knock that, but all the solutions, if they involve significant profit for a corporation, then it will get done. And it just so happens that in this case, it was also a good thing for the public. Yeah. Uh, so in the pharmaceutical companies, um, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, yeah. although they've delivered the goods for wealthy Western countries who have got deep pockets, they are also involved in making sure that these vaccines aren't available elsewhere by holding patents on these drugs. And those patents help to escalate the price. So although we're, we're, you know, we're going leaps and bounds in terms of the numbers vaccinated and nobody can not welcome that, but at what price? And could this have been done a lot cheaper? And why didn't governments get together and insist internationally that these drugs should be patent free and available to all? So it's good news, but it could have even been better. No, of course. And uh, I absolutely take that point. And I was struck by uh, the Cuban announcement where they were making their vaccine available uh, freely to uh, developing countries uh, around the world and indeed were inviting any, any visitors to the country, any tourists, whatever, they, they could kind of come and have a, have a, sort of a vaccine and a vacation, as it were, they were, they were offering. You know. But they, they were uh, the, 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 um, the person who, who heads up their uh, immunology uh, department, uh, I think it, it was referred to, the, the department anyway that, that covers uh, vaccination, said that, you know, we're not driven by the profit motive. Our, our, our motivation is, is helping mankind. And, uh, and therefore, you know, we, we, we are very keen to, you know, make, our uh, vaccine freely available and you know Cuba I mean that's been a wonderful aspect of Cuba its willingness to unlike Britain that exports arms and death and destruction around the world Cuba exports um, healthcare and health workers to go into um, you know disaster zones to provide support for uh, countries uh, I think there were some even in Ireland, if I'm not mistaken, uh, from from uh, uh, Cuba went to, across to to uh, provide some assistance. I might be wrong on that, but it's one Europe. It was only one European country where they went over to offer uh, their expertise. That's a real contrast, and that's the sort of model I think that that we should be striving for, isn't it? In my view, anyway, and that seems to be what you were suggesting there, where you know perhaps under the auspices of the United Nations or the World Health Organization, that the countries could have come together and we could have perhaps rolled it out even more effectively than, than what is happening and done, as you say, at a fraction of the cost. Fraction of a cost. And also the, the, way, the way the Western democracies have handled it is very short-sighted. So we know that uh, if you don't immunise everyone, there's potential of new infection being brought into the country. You get vaccine escape uh, mutations. So, you know, we've got the South African variant, we have the Brazilian variant. The longer this virus is out there in the world, there's greater potential for it to, to mutate and continue to cause us harm. So it is very short-sighted. And this short-sightedness, which is backed by the politicians, is driven by corporate greed. 
You know, a, an example closer to home I was reading about was in Finland, where the Finnish uh, state-sponsored vaccine development uh, agency had a vaccine ready to go in the summer of last year. But that was completely ignored by the government in favor of going to a large multinational. So even in even in a relatively well, much more progressive country than our own, uh, the neoliberal spell has been cast to some degree. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's been described, hasn't it, as socialism for, for the rich. But when it comes to looking out for the majority, uh, there is an unwillingness. And obviously, as we were just speaking about earlier in our conversation this evening, the unwillingness to reward healthcare workers appropriately. Um, I mean, they've been underpaid for many, many years anyway. Um, there was some recompense and uh, uh, improvements, I think, in the in those new Labour years, to be fair. Uh, not enough, but obviously since the coalition came in in 2010, uh, there's been a, a real um, reduction in, as you, I think, say, were saying, Bob, in the, in the real value of health workers' salaries. And, you know, we really know now, don't we, this, this, this COVID crisis has brought into sharp focus who the real key workers are in our country, the people that we absolutely rely on. And it's obviously the health workers, but it's, uh, you know, it's the refuse collectors, it's the uh, delivery drivers, the, you know, the shop workers. They're, they're the people that kept the country going. And these are the people which are undervalued and, and certainly underpaid. Let's go to uh, Sean anyway, uh, uh, Bob, and uh, and see what our audience has been saying this evening, and see comments or questions they might have for you in the closing uh, 15 minutes or so of our programme this evening. Hello, hello, everybody. Um, great comments on the chat as usual. We've got a lot of people on Facebook and YouTube this evening. And as usual, everybody wants to ask questions of Dr. Bob. Um, he's one of our stars that we have on. So thank you once again for coming up back on, Bob. Um, I think we could have you on every week and we'd still get lots of questions for you. Absolutely. Can I ask people to subscribe if they haven't done so? Uh, give us a like because that helps with the algorithms. It helps us to be able to get our message out to even more people. Um, I would also ask you, if lots of people asking what they can do to help, share this video. Share it out to as many places as you can. Let's get that message out there. We also have uh, a podcast of this going out on Friday. Um, and if you want to have your say in future policies, please join the resist movement. We're talking about different policies at the moment, which will go on to create our manifesto in the future. So if you want to have your say, join us and participate in those debates. So on to some questions. Um, oh, there's so many to choose from tonight. Um, Atcha John says, this is a rotten action by government, um, death by a thousand cuts, so to speak and the cadaver left to rot. I can't express my worry enough. Kevin Rathbone says, let's have it right. It's a class war going on for a hundred years since the left was organized. Mark Anderson says, the trouble is the government has far too much control of all aspects of society. It's like having one rich football manager in charge of the whole league. Um, Christine Ladyman says, several years ago, a colleague told me that the practice he worked in had been privatized but the company told them not to worry about new uniforms uh, to keep the NHS ones. I told him then it was rather sly to hide the privatisation. He said I was cynical, 
perhaps, but also older, wiser than this young nurse. Uh, Lex Cameron says the NHS takeover emergency, right wing anarchy, looting Britain, lying fraud. The right tries to paint it that the left or BLM, etc., is on the verge of anarchy or doing it. But the reality is that they are defending against massive right wing anarchy, massive lying, massive theft and massive fraud. The theft of NHS and COVID-19 contracts to friends being currently uh, being current examples in the anarchy, out of control anarchy, similar to Iceland. The public needs to peacefully and urgently reset and place the fraudsters behind bars. Uh, Martio says, Sean, can you please ask Bob uh, about a virus drill, not unlike coronavirus, carried out in London, possibly in 2015. Pilger talks about how they suppressed the findings, which would have pre prepared us for the epidemic. Bob, is that the one that uh, Jeremy Hunt was involved with? And um, can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, so it was uh, 2016. It was called Exercise Cygnus. And uh, there's a good blog by a, a colleague of mine, uh, Musa Qureshi, who, who has launched legal action to try and get the full report released. Um, and we've had, we've had some elements of it made public. Fundamentally, what they said was the NHS would fall over, would collapse if a pandemic struck. And unless capacity was increased, intensive care beds went up, the number of ventilators went up, and we had adequate public health systems in place, then there would be mass preventable death. That's exactly what we've had. Jeremy Hunt was involved in that exercise. And uh, I believe part of what he was asked to do in a, a role model, a, a role play, was to decide which patients' ventilators to turn off so they could give them to other people. And he refused to participate in that element of the exercise. So we knew this was coming. Uh, we did nothing about it. In fact, we carried on cutting and closing and driving staff out because don't forget 2016 was also the year they attacked the junior doctor's contract. Yeah. Well, what happened? What was that going to do? It drove out experienced people who had had enough. And again, that doesn't, that doesn't go against the government agenda because if you, if you can drive out people close to retirement, with organizational memory and experience, well, you're, they're very expensive, aren't they? So if they go, that's a, that's a good development in the government's books, but it's an absolute tragedy for the patients. Yeah, definitely. Someone else asked, um, how, do, have you any idea how many beds we actually have in this country? So uh, before, before Thatcher got going, in the early 80s, there was 300,000. And we've lost more than half. Wow. And we've got the, the lowest uh, bed capacity per, per head of population than the rest of Western Europe. Incredible. It's, yeah, it's awful. Um, Archie John said, could NHS staff work to rule, demand funding to function and make the government respond on the moral issue of morality v capital rules? Yeah, what we lack is willpower from the unions. Um, we hear some weak words about, you know, this is not good enough and whatever. There's no threat 
And unfortunately, until government, there's a threat that might disrupt or cause the government embarrassment, they won't budge. And, you know, we've seen examples. In fact, the 2016 junior doctors dispute was very successful. They were very worried. So they had to nobble the BMA, the British Medical Association, to actually wreck their own industrial action. That's what, in fact, happened. Now, that time was a good time for the nurses' unions to say, hang on a minute, we need our pay increase because we've had six years of austerity. Why don't we combine forces? None of that happened. So, you know, the nurses are in a predicament that unless they do things collectively, you know, they're out. And how many people can afford to go on strike and not be able to pay the bills for how long? So, you know, I don't know enough about industry. I'm not an expert in industrial action, but I know it, it helps if you've got a strong union with a genuine leadership. Just in terms of causing embarrassment, uh, Bob, uh, was it the BMJ uh, uh, had a lead article accusing the government of social murder in relation to the uh, the COVID deaths? Um, it didn't get the attention, I don't think, again, that it that it deserved. But but that was a quite, well, it seemed to me it was quite a significant step. Well, what do you think about that? Yeah, so it was written by the editor Cameron Abassi. He wrote two very powerful, powerful editorials. One was about the corruption in terms of awarding contracts, and the other was about the avoidable death toll. Um, but this shouldn't come as a surprise because the austerity that started in 2010 was economic sanctions imposed by our government against our own population, which we know estimates from, I think it was the UN uh, Special Rapporteur um, on Human Rights, esti estimated and, and work with Cambridge University, I think it was, estimated 130,000 deaths as a result of austerity. Now, that was over a decade. The government have managed to achieve through their chaotic, catastrophic and very wasteful pandemic response. They've achieved the same goal in a year. We've had a, almost 130,000 COVID related deaths. Now, this, this does not worry them because having a working class population, no. 130,000 less of them does not worry them in the slightest. This is what they call taking it on the chin. But COVID has been a very class-conscious disease. It tends to affect the poorest. It tends to affect immigrant populations. It tends to affect people in overcrowded housing and, and sick people. Well, this is a gift from heaven if you, are, if you are of the political and ideological bent that these people are not useless. They're not useful unless they're of our class and earning us a lot of money. No, indeed. I just think just on that point, though, about the social murder um, accusation in that lead article, I just wonder what the reaction would have been in the corporate media had the BMJ run a, a lead article accusing a perhaps a Corbyn-led Labour government of social murder. I suspect we'd still be seeing stories about it, you know, weeks, months later, wouldn't we, given the hyperbole that they indulge in, in, in actually undermining the, you know, the Corbyn project? Absolutely. You know, the uh, the government and the media are hand in glove. You know, there's, there's, nothing, there's no failure that Boris Johnson and his government can perform that won't get covered up. 
or won't, we won't be distracted from. Um, you know, we, we're presented with this bumbling fool, but actually he's, that's just a public persona. Um, whether he's making many of the long-term decisions, I very much doubt because we've had a policy continuum for decades. The person in charge and the person making the day-to-day -day decisions is Simon Stevens. He's yeah. the one running the show and it's McKinsey and the other management consultants that are dictating policy. The politicians are just fronting what the corporations want. That's essentially what's going on here. And there's absolutely no doubt that, you know, a Corbyn-led government would not have survived. I think it would have been brought down by now. Mm. Certainly there have been efforts to do that. I mean, that's one of the reasons I was arguing that we needed a, a grassroots mass movement to defend a Corbyn-led Labour government because of the pressures that it would have undoubtedly come under. Had he gone ahead with the programme that was being mapped out at the time? But anyway, back to you, Sean, any other comments from... Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting you bring that up with the media. Um, you've been talking this week, Chris, with uh, Max Blumenthal about the propaganda with the, with the media and the BBC and Reuters, um, which is quite interesting. And um, I also watched the Harry and Meghan interview um, the other night with Oprah Winfrey. And, and they were saying that um, the media are regularly invited down to Buckingham Palace uh, to have parties etc um and it's you know it's like bob said it's a hand in glove kind of thing and I, that leads me to think well if that's going on at the palace then it's got to be going on in government um you know we see pictures of murdoch coming out of number 10 and um you know it, people have got to get their heads around the fact that um this uh, media the mainstream the bbc is incredibly biased and is throwing out um, the, the government's um, and the establishment's, uh, you know, they're a tool of the government and the and the establishment. Yeah. Um, so back to some questions anyway. Um, so Danny Shell says, wages are so low, some nurses are jacking it in to work at Aldi because it pays better. This is a part of the Conservative plan to streamline the service to make... Oh, you're frozen, Sean. ...more attractive which I think Bob has is, is alluded to that anyway, driving people out. Um, oh, sorry. Um, I think Bob alluded to the fact that um, people that people who work in the, in the, in the National Health Service are being um, driven out. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, because they, they get the pay um, and, and they're having to go and work in Aldi. Yes. Have you come across that, yeah. Bob? Have you... Have you I had personal experience of that, or I'm sure you've heard anecdotal evidence of it. It's always a, a topic of conversation, certainly with colleagues of mine, 50, 50 and above, saying, you know, how long can they endure what's going on? Because all, all these cuts and the overstretched services, it has a direct effect on patients, obviously. What, what it means, you know, not, not having enough beds, what does that mean? It means when you're seriously sick, you can't get admitted, and there's a very great pressure to discharge you when you're not fully fit, and that costs lives. And then when those patients come out and they're in the community, well, where does that responsibility fall? It falls onto the GP. And, you know, nursing staff who's, who's got years of experience and are put under so much strain in, a, in an environment which is highly stressful with a management that couldn't care less whether they were there or not there, 
it's quite attractive to go and do a job which you know you're not seeing people die preventably so it's not just about income it's this chronic yeah. psychological strain Indeed. of working in particularly the acute services like A&E and ITU where you know that you could do a much better job had the resources gone in mm. we can all live with after a while you can live with death where you've tried your best but when you know you haven't been able to try your best because the resources aren't there then that eventually eats away at your soul and you can't take it anymore so it's it's not only the income it's the conditions with, within which we're working the income is inadequate for nurses you know we hear stories of them having to go to food banks and all the rest Shocking. it's despicable but as i said earlier it's keeping the wage bill down mm. but also don't forget they want to replace qualified people with unqualified people so you have uh, the consultants in the hospital getting their work, work dumped onto gps who don't have the experience you have gps work being dumped onto the nurses you've got nurses work dumped onto hcas and hcas work dumped onto volunteers and at every level you're having people working outside their competence and that's another form of stress now either either you 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 uh, you get used to working outside your competence or you drop your standards and it becomes normalized so you have burnout and and a an erosion of standards and you know if you've got bills to pay it's very hard to make a principled moral stand you end up going with the flow that's what most people will do yeah Absolutely. And Bob, I can attest to that as being a former teacher, that exactly the same thing is happening in education as well. The teaching assistants were uh, who were the lowest paid. They were having to step up and do the work of a teacher. Um, the teachers were having to step up and do the work of managers where they would previously have got paid extra money for doing positions like that. They weren't getting any extra money. Um, and eventually the burnout and the stress gets to you and you think, you know what, I'm just going to go and get a job in a supermarket yeah. you know lots of teachers were saying that um when i was working in a school um finally, my last... about one more round of yeah questions. i was just going to say my last question um could, Chris, I just, could i just come in come in there yeah sure what ends up happening is the people who want to do the best who have the most insight but can't achieve it are driven out absolutely you're, lo you're losing the best and what's happening within the NHS, you're going to lose, you're going to hemorrhage experience. Yeah. So what they've, they've also attacked the consultants' pensions. That's no accident because they want them to go. They want that organisational memory to go. They want people who remember what the NHS used to be like and could be like, they want them out. And this is how you do it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, one last question, Chris. Um, I think this will probably be one for you to uh, comment on. Um, why, oh, why did everyone not listen to Jeremy at the last general election? He, he, he even held up the report. So I think this is alluding to the report that Jeremy uh, got yeah. his hands on. Well, Jeremy, of course, had been demonised and the Labour Party under his leadership had been demonised for four solid years, not just by the corporate media and the establishment, but by the Parliamentary Labour Party and saboteurs inside the bureaucracy of the Labour Party who were determined to prevent a Labour victory with Jeremy Corbyn and a modest socialist programme and an anti-imperialist foreign policy coming into power. 
And obviously, the decision to embrace a second referendum was a disastrous. The agreement to hold an election in the middle of winter, almost at winter solstice, was absurd, particularly when Labour in 2017 got such a lot of momentum from the campaigning on the street. And of course, the third problem, I think, which led to the demise of the Corbyn project at that uh, election was the relentless witch hunt that had gone on against uh, Jeremy's strongest supporters. But with all that, let's just remember, though, and get it on the record, that although it was the worst election results since 1935 in terms of the seats that were won by Labour, in terms of the popular vote, actually, Labour secured a, a bigger vote than, uh, than Miliband, than Gordon Brown, and indeed than, uh, than Tony Blair did in 2005. Whilst that's, you know, get no prizes for coming second, I think... Um, there's been a lot of mischief uh, making in relation to that result, which was worked upon by those uh, enemies of, of the, the programme that, that Jeremy represented. But it was difficult, I think, to get cut through, actually, uh, given all of those other problems. And, and, you know, the point that I think we were touching on in the discussion with, with Bob, the way in which the, the corporate media doesn't actually pick up on some of these really important and key issues. I mentioned the uh, the lead article in the, the BNJ where the government was accused of social murder. I mean, these are these are kind of, these are really kind of the devastating criticisms and yet very little mention in the mainstream corporate uh, media. And so I think that was part of the part of the problem. Uh, and, um, and I think partly as well, Jeremy, Jeremy's failure to actually defend his reputation and defend uh, his comrades and, and and the party's reputation in an attempt to try and, um, you know, placate bad faith actors. I think all of these things came together and resulted in the disastrous outcome that uh, we saw at that election. Having said that, you know, even if Labour had won that election with Jeremy as the leader, because the leadership hadn't embraced those democracy reforms that I and, and others were campaigning for in, in 2018, and obviously prior to my, right up to my suspension in, in 2019, without those democratic reforms, without making the Parliamentary Labour Party accountable to the grassroots, Jeremy would have found it very, very difficult to deliver his programme anyway, because they just didn't support him. And they would have sabotaged it in, in, in Parliament, and he wouldn't have got his programme through. And that would have been incredibly damaging as well, uh, because a lot of hope and expectation would have been invested in a Corbyn-led Labour government, uh, to then see, had that Corbyn-led Labour government been elected, not actually deliver on the things that had been pledged, I think that would have just built cynicism to you know a, a level that we've that we've not seen before. As it happens, obviously, we never even got that far, and we've really got to to start again. And the sort of work that Bob is doing and that we're trying to do in our movements, I think, is is so crucial. We can't rely on the Labour Party anymore. It is no longer the voice of the organised working class, if it ever was. And we've got to dust ourselves down and recognise the strength of our collective solidarity by standing together. We can make a difference and we can turn things around. We've just got to be brave and bold and, and recognise the power that we have in our own hands. Don't look and rely on a third party uh, Labour Party, which isn't fit for purpose anymore. That, that would be my sort of uh, two, two penneth. I don't know if Bob, in the last 30 seconds, whether you want to add anything to that. No, I don't think there's anything there I could disagree with. Um, it wasn't enough just to point out that leaked dossier. There was there was a lot more, particularly on the NHS, that could have been said, that was never said. And, you know, it's down to not ju just Jeremy, but the team around him. 
Yeah, of course. Uh, if I if I was briefing him on health, that might have been a different matter, you know. But uh, the the whole the the leadership of the NHS and the uh, insurance industry creep. There was so much more to get out, and I think you know that revelation about the dossier was relatively weak, given what else there was there to tell people. Yeah. Well, listen, you know. Anything's possible, you know, now. I mean, I think we are in uncharted territory. I think everything is to play for. And, uh, you know, the political duopoly that's held sway for 100 plus years now, uh, I think is, on, is, is in jeopardy. Uh, it's not going to be easy. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not impossible either. I mean, and the, and the dream team would be having uh, Bob, in, in, the, in the event, Bob, of a, of, a, of a proper socialist government comes about, rest assured, if we've got anything to do with it, mate, you will be a very high-placed individual that will be advising it and we'll, we'll have people who are fit for purpose like yourself at the top of the, of the tree uh, advising uh, on the sort of programme. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I'm sure you are, I'm sure, Bob. And we, we, you know, it would be a, a wonderful... Uh, prime. You know, listen, if you don't have a dream, how are you going to have a dream come true? So uh, let's let's uh, let's keep that uh, thought. Um, listen, thanks very much indeed, Bob, uh, for another brilliant uh, um, contribution this evening. As Sean was saying, we've been inundated with with comments and, and questions, and uh, you know you're always a, a very popular guest. And thank you for being such a friend for for this uh, program and, and coming on, particularly as you did at the drop of a hat. Given that we'd already planned to have an alternative guest, and uh, and so we had to ask you at the, at the last minute, and I'm delighted that you were able to come on. A really important topic that we've uh, discussed this evening. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Next week, we're going to be uh, looking at the scandal of uh, the joint enterprise injustice, which has led to so many miscarriages of justice, and we'll be speaking to some, cam some campaigners who have been looking at, at this and uh, how we might be able to help them to uh, get this terrible law which has resulted in, in, in so many miscarriages of justice actually repealed. Thank you for watching. Look out for us next week, seven o'clock on a Wednesday evening, same time as I say, same place. Thanks for watching and good night.